I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Hellboy 2019. Back when this Neil Marshall movie was released, signifying the end of our dreams of a Guillermo del Toro-helmed final part of a trilogy, I recorded an after-school club with Sharon delivering my first impressions having seen it that day. More recently, a fourth film was announced, rebooting the IP once again. Hellboy colon The Crooked Man. In fact, at the time of final editing on this, it has just been announced that they wrapped on filming, without a single production photo yet being released. But it is a third continuity not connected to Del Toro's or this one. Getting rid of David Harbour, Neil Marshall, and one would assume everything else to do with that production, it's now going to be directed by Brian Taylor of Crank, Crank 2, Gamer, and Jonah Hex. Apparently, Sharon's holding her head in her hands. Apparently, it's written by Hellboy creator Mike Mignola. It's still under the purview of Millennium Media. That's the studio behind Olympus, London, and Angel Has Fallen, The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, The 2017 Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw 3D, The Expendables Movies, The Remake of The Wicker Man with All the Bees, Snake Man, Skeleton Man, Mosquito Man, Shark Man, Shark Attack 3 Megalodon, Crocodile 2 Death Swamp, Operation Delta Force 5 Random Fire, which is frankly the best of the Operation Delta Force Quintology, Cyborg Cop 3, Octopus 2 River of Fear, Terminator Woman, and Shark in Venice. So there is just the tiniest, slightest chance that Hellboy 4 will be the greatest film ever made. So I figured it was time to go back to this now abandoned David Harbour film, and this time both Sharon and Willow would not only watch along with me, but join me for the second half of this episode to talk all about it. So the first part of the show is that first impressions recording, the second part is Willow losing their ever-loving mind at how their new favourite comic book and long-beloved character of Hellboy was so utterly butchered. How many of those films are real? Those are all real. No! Those are all real. No! Why would I make this shit up? I just thought you might have, like, dropped a couple of random made-up ones just to... Just to fuck ...underline them. the point. Honestly, I thought about it, but I was like, no, this list is full of abs... Like, how have they been going since the 80s and no one said, you know what? The cinema does not need you anymore. In fact, frankly, thinking about it, looking at most of your list, the cinema did not receive most of these. But Gerard Butler can find work elsewhere. I also missed off Rambo 4, the reprehensible one. No, not that one, the other reprehensible one. No, not that one either. I thought you meant just Rambo 4, the reprehensible. Every one of us is reprehensible. Been, that would have been a good subtitle. Oh my god! So yeah, Hellboy 4, uh, looking forward to it. But this show's all about Hellboy 2019, which is just great. On an island off the coast of Scotland, something was summoned from the depths of hell. Something that would end mankind. And this uh, thing? You worried about did it show up? Oh yes. You did. We face every threat there is, and yet you take me in. Hello, son. You made me a goddamn weapon. 
Where's my fucking violin? Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Out there, there's a fifth-century sorceress who wants to bring down the curtain on London and the world. Great homework. Why do you fight for those who hate and fear you? You were meant for this. Out of the ashes, new Eden will emerge. Okay, I'd appreciate a prophecy with more relatable stakes. Haven't we got to be saving the world or something? Yeah, okay, come on. Let's get your game face on. Yeah, come on, let's do this. Be my king. We belong together, you and I. We do, but this is not gonna work, you know, because I'm a Capricorn and you're Fucking nuts! Okay. Rise of the Blood Queen. I'm not going to play their game and call this Hellboy. It's not Hellboy. There was a film released in 2004 called Hellboy by Guillermo del Toro. There was a uh, sequel to that released in 2008 called uh, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. We've covered them in two exhaustively deep shows where we explored these rich depths. You can't call this Hellboy, not just Hellboy, that figuratively pastes over the original Hellboy name. It's I've had a problem with, I, I would not call last year's Halloween, Halloween. I couldn't even call it The Halloween because it's not even the second film to be just called Halloween. Technically, it's the third because the Rob Zombie remake's in the middle there. And I'm not going to call it The The Halloween. And since all the Halloween films kind of cancel each out the uh, continuity of the last ones, I decided to call it Halloween 11 because that's what it is, the 11th Halloween film. It's not fuck around here, shall we? So I could call this Hellboy 3, but I'm not going to because it doesn't feel like it's the third anything. If anything, it feels... You know how Amazing Spider-Man spent the first half of itself kind of just going over old ground in a way that nobody liked or wanted? Mm. That's most of the film. Uh, it, It renders the whole exercise pointless, but let's go into as much detail as we can as we're going. Originally, this was going to be titled Rise of the Blood Queen. Hellboy, colon, Rise of the Blood Queen. I'm just going to call it Rise of the Blood Queen. I think that's more appropriate because therein you have the story. It's not really about Hellboy. It's not more about Hellboy than Hellboy was. I just tweeted that uh, movies this feels like, because I've just literally got back uh, about half an hour ago, The Bourne Legacy. Do you remember that one? I don't think I saw it. It was the fourth film. The one with Jeremy Jeremy Renner. Renner. Where they were like, okay, so Matt Damon, Jason Bourne's uh, story is done, but we could carry on with Bourne films. It's still good. It's still good. And they did a Jeremy Renner one, and everyone went, and shrugged. And they didn't make any more Jeremy Renner ones. And then worryingly, both Matt Damon and Paul Greengrass returned for a fifth film, simply called Jason Bourne, that was one of the first movies I quick reviewed, and was entirely underwhelming. So yeah, it feels like The Bourne Legacy. It feels like From Dust Till Dawn, to Texas Blood Money. You ever seen that film? It's a completely pointless sequel, just made to make money, 
uh, and it features nobody from the original film. Uh, although it is set in the Titty Twister. I think maybe Cheech Marin might be in it. I don't care. The Poltergeist remake. You know, the one that everyone saw and it was like, oh, okay, well, that was shit. Why did you bother doing that? And now I'm going to guess that most people have forgotten it. It's like Independence Day. Resurgence. It's like Highlander. Endgame. It's like Blade. Trinity. It's like Point Break. The remake of Point Break. Or Total Recall. The remake of Total Recall. It's like R.I.P.D., which itself seemed to be trying to be Men in Black, but felt like Men in Black 2. And trying to be Hellboy, but felt like this. The movie it doesn't feel like is Hellboy or Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. In fact, I was coming out and I was thinking, hang on, has there been some sort of weird time loop? Because this film feels like it was made in 2004, which means that technically the first movie entitled Hellboy, directed by Guillermo del Toro, could have been made in 2008. And the Golden Army, which feels very much like a Marvel film we established on our uh, episode in The Golden Army, could be made now and everyone would fucking love it. But The Dark Knight was the comic book hero movie being touted as revolutionary that year. So things like Hancock and Hellboy 2 The Golden Army and The Incredible Hulk and even Iron Man got sidelined. Uh, so it's directed by Neil Marshall who uh, did The Descent, which is straight up excellent. Uh, it's, it's, it's this triple threat of fear of the dark, fear of confined spaces and fear of attack and mutilation, especially inside those confined dark spaces. Uh, he made Centurion, which is a really great tight little, you know, Roman miniature epic, a lost legion sprint across uh, picked infested ancient Britain slash Scotland uh, in order to get back to the garrison. Nasty on foot survival movie. And uh, it's good. Doomsday. Not, not so fantastic. It's uh, that's like Scotland's been annexed and it's full of just like savages and uh, the, the Sean Pertwee gets cooked and eaten. I'm like, all right. Uh, and then there's dog soldiers. Uh, Sean Pertwee also comes a cropper in that film. I think that's just what Neil Marshall likes doing. But uh, that's, again, like a taut uh, werewolf siege survival film. It's uh, It wasn't particularly beloved in its day, but it makes for a really great night in with, you know, some bevies and a curry. Um, so Marshall's thing is survival? It would appear so. And I think he's way beyond the material he's been handed here, mm. frankly. He hasn't done much of anything in terms of films since 2010, that, to me, suggests that because his films don't make that much money, they, they drafted him to TV instead. And he's mm. gotten work doing uh, you know, an episode here, an episode there of like serious, gritty TV shows. So it's difficult to just blame Neil Marshall for why this is problematic, especially when you hear that there's been a lot of problems backstage, a lot of execs getting their oar in. Now, for perspective, folks, a couple of years ago, Guillermo del Toro went to have a proper talk about doing a Hellboy 3. And he laid his uh, plans on the table and they said, no, thank you. Mike Mignola, uh, the uh, creator of the comic, uh, the artist and the uh, writer, had ideas on where to take Hellboy in film. Del Toro made two very much Del Toro movies and he wanted to make a Mike Mignola movie. And I, I wish he had. <laughs> because this isn't it. I don't know what happened in in the wash, but it didn't it didn't happen the way they wanted it to. I, I did some more digging on the actual um, crew. Uh, the cinematographer uh, was Lorenzo Senator. If you go to hear, uh, Neil Marshall's back catalogue, his cinematographer is almost always Sam McCurdy. 
he did uh, all of the films we mentioned above, and uh, he was apparently fired from the set of this. That's re- it's really unusual that a cinematographer is fired. It's very specific. I remember I can think of one scenario, and we've already mentioned it. I don't know if it was on the Aliens show, but the original cinematographer for Aliens lit the Queen's Hive very brightly. You could see everything. You could see the puppet in the middle. You could see every corner. Mm-hmm. And Cameron said, well, that's not what I want. It needs to be dark and murky. And this guy, who was British, came on really uppity with James Cameron and said, I think I know how to light a room like this. Thank you, Sonny Jim. And James Cameron said, get off my fucking set! I'll fucking eat your fucking heart! Or something along those lines. Because James Cameron is a passionate and some might say rather volatile filmmaker, as we have established during our Cameron season. But Neil Marshall isn't. And yeah, no, he then, didn't He didn't fire his old collaborator. I was just going to say, that then begs the question, who fired him? Was it Neil Marshall or was it the execs? And for the execs to fire a cinematographer seems a bit... It's weird. It, it, why have they got such a specific idea for what it should look like that they pick on the cinematographer? <clears throat> The replacement cinematographer they got was Lorenzo Senator. Now, I specifically looked this up this morning before seeing the film because all of the trailers look like absolute shit. And I was thinking, why is that? Am I? Is it just because they're cut like trailers? Is it the editing or what? And uh, I looked up this guy. He's done a lot of work. I'm going to run down his list as fast as I possibly can. Epoch Evolution, Dragonstorm, Post-Impact, Boa vs. Python, Dark Light, Alien Siege, Path of Destruction, Manticore. He's been working since 2003. Locusts, The Eighth Plague, Magma Volcanic Disaster, SS Doomtrooper, Behind Enemy Lines 2, Axis of Evil, Return to House on Haunted Hill, Grendel, Lake Placid 2, Copperhead, Bogeyman 3, Starship Troopers 3, Marauder, Echelon Conspiracy, Messenger 2, The Scarecrow, Wrong Turn 3, Left for Dead. The Fourth Kind, Double, in, uh, double, ide- I say double Indemnity there. It would have been a TV remake. Double Identity, Mirrors 2, Monster Wolf, Triassic Attack, Sniper Reloaded, Spiders 3D, Invasion Roswell, Northman, A Viking Saga, Asylum, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, Risen, Megan Levy, and Hellboy. Now that's a distressing list. I imagine I'm Neil Marshall looking down this list and going, fuck. It's just TV movies. It's just like shitty asylum movies. It's just giant octopus versus shark movies that look like crap on the sci-fi channel and have a budget of about $2,000. This is fucking garbage. How is this guy in charge of photographing my film? The thing that leaps out at me looking at that list, because you've you've copied this list from Wikipedia. Wikipedia Wikipedia has... uh, people's names in one colour if they have their own page (laughs) and another colour if they don't. There are so many directors on this list that don't have their own page. You're so right. Shit. So, I'm baffled. These are exec-driven movies where someone put a page on a uh, table and said, make this and make us some money out of it and hire somebody who can put that together. And how many times throughout our tenure have I said it all comes down to the script? It's got to be a good script, otherwise it doesn't matter how well it's photographed, it's going to come out like garbage. Writer Andrew Crosby, he has done three episodes of a TV series called Haunted from 2002 to 2008, and uh, 77 episodes of A Town Called Eureka, which I've never heard of in 2012, and then Hellboy. Again, Whose nephew is this? 
He's not even the writer of all those episodes of A Town Called Eureka. Oh, He's right. credited as the writer for three episodes. Oh, right. He is credited as a creator, creator. Okay. for 77, which means what? He came up with a few ideas? Right. Okay, the script is fucking garbage. It looks like that shit and it talks like shit. Mm. I should be quivering with rage right now. When I first saw the first teaser trailer... I cried. Sharon was there. I, I watched it. It wasn't like childish crying or, you know, where, where you're like shaggy. Um, and it wasn't like manly crying where you just like stand in the rain and it goes. And like you're crying, but no one can see because the rain. It was just like watching it and and just slowly being crushed as this garbage played out in the teaser. And I thought I was going to hate this movie more than anything else in the world. And I was going to be furious at it. And the more trailers came out, the more I was like, well, that looks like shit. That looks like lukewarm shit. And it sounds like I'm angry, but I'm, I'm actually not. I'm disappointed. I'm sad. It can't take the Del Toro films away from me. It did represent... The, the other road taken instead of Hellboy 3. The story is Bobbins, a, a, a vampire queen. Uh, King Arthur ambushed her, cut her into bits, sent her to all over the world. Uh, then her pig, guy, demon, uh, Belial from the um, Hellboy comics. The boar, who's really got it in for Hellboy. Do you remember the one with the... There's like a short with a changeling that the, he's been called in by these two very worried parents going, that is not our baby. And uh, he holds a horseshoe to the baby uh, baby's skin and the baby goes, and turns into a little goblin thing. And then um, turns into a pig and, and, and gets away. And eventually Hellboy manages to get the kid back. Uh, it gets reprised in this uh, book, book nine, The Wild Hunt. And they actually have those scenes in this film. So I'm, I'm like, okay, so like bits of this are actually from the Hellboy comic. It doesn't look like the Hellboy comic. It looks like absolute ass. It doesn't have that beautiful high contrast blacks everywhere with just red for, for Hellboy and just the, you know, the beautiful sparing detail and the use of space that Mignola is capable of. And, and I wondered... Why couldn't Mignola, who's written Hellboy for years, write the script? Why did they get this fucking bellend to write it? Mm, What's the question. point? If you want control, write it. Mm -hmm. If you want your Hellboy, write him. I don't get what studio would not go, we need a writer. Michael, do you... Do you know anyone? Do you know anyone? <laughs> uh, how about the guy who wrote 77 episodes of A Town Called Eureka? Created 77. Created 77 episodes. So, yeah, the, uh, the Wild Hunt is about guys who hunt giants, and then there's a blood queen, and uh, she wants to bring about the end of the world, the apocalypse. Blah, blah, blah. At the beginning, Ian McShane's doing the monologue, and he's like, you know, like, cut her fucking head off. It's like thousands of years ago, but it's got this very earthy fucking and sucking language, and it's kind of like, oh, they've got Al Swear engine into to, uh, to, to read this thing. I was like, honestly, this is crass, but I could take it. Like, if it does this the whole way through and it's, like, kind of funny and irreverent about uh, fantasy, but really didn't go beyond there. They say fuck and shit and, you know, fuck you, you fucking wanker. Mm. The pig guy is, like, is a scouser. For Americans, this means he has a regional Liverpudlian accent. Like the Beatles. What's that then, love? There's, there's one bit in it uh, where the pig guy who's like the lack, he's Bebop to uh, um, the, the Blood Queen. He's like, oh, Hellboy ruined me life, man. I could have had lightness and, and, and a family, and he took that away from me. 
And she doesn't say, well, you stole that from a baby. Like, you know, you have no ground to stand on here. But it's more of, you know, for a lackey, it's more than you'd expect. Mm. And I was like, that's actually from the comic because he really does have his, uh, you know, an axe to grind with Hellboy. Oh, no, it's not Belial, it's Graugach. And they actually say his name in the uh, the, the film, I remember oh. now. Uh, and interestingly, his design is a little bit like Mr. Wink in uh, uh, Hellboy 2. Mm. So there's a lot of pressure on Mila Jovovich to be this blood queen, this be-all, end-all. Like, she's up against the guy who played Rasputin in the original, and she's up against Luke Goss, who is one of the most phenomenal, like, killmonger-level, he's kind of right, villains out there. And they've taken leafs out of the original Hellboy and Golden Army book. There's the whole, ah, he's going to be the king who sits upon the throne and, like, burns the whole world. Most of the same stuff with the horns and the tearing them off happens from the original one and the you choose who you want to be aspect only this time it comes off less like del toro and more like Zack snyder and the blood queen goes you know what do you owe these people you know they, they want to, you to hunt down and kill your uh, brethren and and uh, hellboy himself shouts at broom for being made into a weapon for doing that and he's like they kind of just they go over the old ground in very quick time um without any real detail or uh or richness or, or any of what was there originally. But, they, you know, there is substance there. It's just, it feels like copy-pasted substance, like like they've been looking over Del Toro's shoulder in a test, and then they copied what they could see, quickly scribbled, before the time ran out. And obviously, quite a lot of that comes from Mignola's original comic. Some of it was Del Toro's, some of it was Mignola's. So it feels like Del Toro most definitely captured the spirit of those comics in a way that this doesn't, which is why it's such a weird contradiction. If this was the one he had more control over, why doesn't it feel more like Hellboy rather than less That's like Hellboy? Hmm. Good question. Uh, and But Jovovich is... like uh, If you look at everything she's done since Fifth Element, where she established herself as this kind of, you know, beautiful kung fu kicking action girl uh, who was also very special and powerful. Uh, she's done the Resident Evil movies, all six of them. She uh, did The Three Musketeers, where she played Milady, uh, and she did Ultraviolet, where she played a kung fu kicking vampire, and she's done very little else. She's, she's getting on a bit and still has a screen presence, so I do admire Mila Jovovich. I love The Fifth Element. I'm never going to not love that. I hate all of those above films that I mentioned. They're all garbage. And Mila Jovovich cannot hold this level of presence, and she can't command the film as the main bad guy on her own. You need somebody with both the raw magnetism and innate weirdness of, say, Angelina Jolie as Glendale's mother in Beowulf. She could have commanded this. And she does her best. You know, she's like kind of like shouty and at times a little bit persuasive. But it's milk toast in comparison with Prince Nuada. Or even, frankly, Rasputin, who had this kind of really creeping, unearthly feel about him. And just like he didn't have to shout. He was very much kind of very much a true believer in in what he was uh, uh, into. The delivery in the film, aside from one or two actors, is appalling. And I think you can blame Neil Marshall for this because the director is the person who who asks for a performance from his actors. Mm. And when they talk the way they do without conviction, you have to get them to commit. The only reason you wouldn't is because you're just desperate to get this fucking thing done and you can't stand being on set. 
Under those circumstances, you would say, yep, that'll do fine. Under those circumstances, you can still blame Neil for not actually going, fuck it. If we're going to do this, we'll do it right. We will carry on. And like, I'll talk you through it. This is what the character's feeling. And you need to know how to commit to this role. It looks so cheap. It's boring. My God, is this film boring. I was checking my watch after the first hour or so I was checking it every five minutes I was like okay an hour left 55 minutes left 54 minutes left 51 minutes left I could not wait for this thing to be over Daniel Day Kim if you remember uh, it was going to be Ed Scrain from Deadpool uh, as this character an Asian character and looking at the, the, the guy I can't see why they would have cast Ed Scrain at all if you look at a casting sheet and see that this is an Asian character and you just think of a standard white guy from the reboot of the Transporter films the Transporter Refueled or more likely the villain that everybody kept complaining was kind of boring in Deadpool that's not a reflection on Ed Scrain's character as an actor so much as who he keeps getting cast as. But the decision to pick Ed Scrain over an Asian actor says a hell of a lot about the pre-production of Rise of the Blood Queen. Kim gives quite a memorable performance. He's kind of the Abe Sapien, only him and Hellboy verbally spar all the time. Uh, maybe he's a little similar to Krauss in that they're, uh, he's the Lancer. This means he's the guy on the team who argues with the leader all the time. So Wolverine in the rebooted Chris Claremont X-Men would argue with Cyclops all the time. But much like the Wolverine and the X-Men animated show, if your Wolverine character is your main character, you kind of need a stick in the mud to argue with him. And he seems intent on uh, uh, killing Hellboy, and he doesn't trust him, and he gets a special bullet from some uh, uh, from gunsmiths, and then later finds out that he might destroy the world, and it's like... Surely you want to kill him and you don't trust him because you know he's probably going to destroy the world. Not, you're like, oh, well, glad, glad I got this special bullet then. Uh, it, it's an odd uh, turn. And he's a werecat, which is neat. And he's an Asian actor being given stuff to do in an action film. And it's not necessarily martial arts based. That's a step forward. So at the very least, Ed Scrain being handed the role, Ed Scrain going you know what, this is for an Asian character, I'm going to step down. That is a gentlemanly, professional thing for him to do, and Daniel Day Kim should be in more stuff. Ian McShane is about as far from John Hurt's Trevor Bruton home as you can get. He's basically Al Swearingen, uh, only the way he uh, talks to Hellboy is like, shut up, you fucking asshole! Yeah, that sounds like Al Swearingen. Yeah. <laughs> Proves in eight words he's incompetent and a fucking liar. He kind of got Adam's telegram more than four hours ago, yet he expects me to believe that in four hours he can prudently assess the qualities of 23 hires. And <laughs> you know what on our way means, huh? No. On our way means they're getting drunk and blown in some saloon in Cheyenne and running their mouths about this big fucking filibustering expedition they've been commissioned for under command of the famous Hawkeye. The laziest, most shit-faced, whoremongering cocksucker to ever piss my money away. Please do not strike me. And he's he's got a very kind of a roughness to him. And I, I, I remember saying that, you know, what the hell? He, he's supposed to be 90 now. Like, if he was there during the uh, World War II segment, why is he not 90? And a woman turned up at that exact moment and went, oh, by the way, uh, he's not 90 because we were visited by a ghost and some scene we didn't shoot who gave us the power of long life. Seriously? Yeah. Fuck off. 
They explain it in a sentence. Thank God for the blah, blah, blah. Sony has a futuristic sci-fi movie they're looking to make. Cigarettes in space. It's the final frontier, Nick. But wouldn't they blow up in an all-oxygen environment? Probably. But it's an easy fix. One line of dialogue. Thank God we invented the, you know, whatever device. That's just lazy. There is one point at the beginning when he mentioned, oh, my dear old dad. And I thought, oh... This is son of Trevor Brutenholm. He's like Broom the Second. That kind of makes sense. That would be something like, you know, that it was John Hurt for all these years. We could even like have a picture of John Hurt. And they'd be like, oh, that was a nice thing to do. But it, it, that goes nowhere. It was just him. And he's just never aged. And has stayed roughly the same personality for about 75 years. So this blind, clairvoyant woman tells us this contrivance. And then a pig eats her. Tells the unexpected with a sort of bruise. Tells the unexpected. There's always a push to dim the towel. Do you remember that on telly? A push to dim the towel. They would go along and push. And they were easy pieces to write because all you had to have is something unexpected happen. So it's, say it was a blow. Yeah, exactly. Well, what have you written? Um, your brains are in advance of me here. But no, you say a bloke, and he's, he's, he has a relationship with a, a woman and, uh, or his wife or whatever, and he thinks his wife is seeing someone else. So he, he goes home from work early, and uh, she's at home, and, and he goes home at four o'clock, and he opens the front door, and a pig eats him. <laughs> totally unexpected, isn't it? You could not get any letters coming in saying, I totally predicted the pig at that point. You could see it a mile off, matey. Don't you put one over on me. No, no way, Piggy Wiggy. Don't know if you do the last line, but it could, you know. Piggy Wiggy 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 Wiggy. No way. Piggy Wiggy. Wiggy. Ian McShane's long-lived Professor Broom has got the same journey as Brutenholm in the uh, original film, only he doesn't have any of that... He disclosed to me the child's true name. Would you like to know it? Yeah. What to call him? Nothing you can do or say can change that. I call him Son. Oh, just thinking about how John Hurt played that character. What I am asking of you is to have the courage to stand by him when I am gone. He was born a demon, we cannot change that. But you will help him, in essence, to become a man. That's a special film. Baba Yaga's in this, which pisses me off because I've got a Baba Yaga in Steamheart. And it's like, right, okay, so uh, everyone's going to go, ah, you put a Baba Yaga in Steamheart because of uh, it being in Hellboy, to which I will say... Yes and no. No, it's not because it was in Rise of the Blood Queen. Yes, it's because it was in Hellboy, because Baba Yaga plays a long-standing, scheming villain in those comics. But no, that didn't put Baba Yaga into my head. I've loved the idea of Baba Yaga since Monster in My Pocket in 1989 when she was a 15-pointer, and I read a folklore tale about her, and I loved her even more after watching Lawn Dogs. Side note, by the way, I have a complete Series 1 and Series 2 of Monster in my pocket. Some of the other monsters that I've folded into my storytelling include the Manticore, Springheel Jack, and the Wendigo. 
So in case anyone's wondering, my Baba Yaga character, while also heavily inspired by the Angel of Death in Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, once again Doug Jones just killing it, but the mythology around Yagana you know, stems from that original folklore. And it's neat that she's also in Hellboy, but that's not the same character I'm putting out there. Mm -hmm. And it's a damn shame that they showed the house walking on chicken legs because that's not something we've ever actually seen on screen before. And it feels such a ignoble way to bring Baba Yaga to the screen. She's a shit character and they're clearly trying to do Doug Jones without Doug Jones being there. Mm -hmm. And she's like... Exorcist walking all over the place with wooden legs and a great big CGI face like something out of fucking R.I.P.D. She somehow manages to be both over-designed and underdeveloped. You know what? Let's have a chrono-off. Contestant number one, Guillermo del Toro's Angel, Angel of, of Death. Death. When can I have that which is mine? Can you save him? It is for you to decide that. It is all the same to me. My heart is filled with dust and sand. But you should know it is his destiny to bring about the destruction of the Earth. Not now, not tomorrow, but Contestant number two, Neil Marshall's Baba Yaga. Baba! Baba Yaga! I felt your hunger, and I have prepared the feast for you. You know where Nimue is, don't you? Such nice eyes. Yellow as piss. My favorite color. I want one to replace what you took from me. That's not gonna happen, sister. Your time is running out, demon. Once Nimue's resurrection is complete, her plague will strip the flesh from bodies. Alright, fine. And contestant number three, from the New Century Multiverse Book 8, Uncivil Outlaw, this is Yagana. Such information is requiring a payment. Which of you would like to offer it up? What does it entail? Your heart will ache. For a time. But then I'll get better, right? It will not be entirely ruinous, but it will be pain all the same. I don't understand how that's beneficial to you. I get the peace of mind. Get the peace of mind. You would have had. All right, I'll pay. I was gone. I don't feel things as intensely as you do. It makes more logical sense for this to be me. I felt a sudden beat of pressure inside my chest. 
it subsided, but did not depart. It is done. So, yes, one of the reasons we are spending so much time on this bad movie is because this is an area of fiction I care about greatly, and I want this space treated with the respect it deserves. It'd be like if somebody came into your local park while you were sitting with your family quietly, enjoying the sunshine, and then they just started screaming and puking and shitting on the bandstand, setting one or two trees on fire and playing heavy metal music at top volume on speakers that sound like a giant wasp dying, and not the good heavy metal music. So not Sabbath, not Metallica, not Maiden, not Motorhead. We're talking oxen killer, abominable putridity, and torso fuck. Now here's the thing, you don't own that park, but they are treating it very badly. There's a bit when a bunch of giant demons wander around London interacting with nobody in the film, it's just a bunch of pre-viz stuff, and they start just stabbing people with their giant spiked legs, and like, one, a man gets grabbed, and like, they rip the skin off his face, and then a woman gets grabbed, and it gets turned upside down and her legs get pulled into a Y and she screams and screams and he rips across the crotch and then rips her in half. And then another woman gets pulled up in the air by two pterodactyls. And I'm like, oh, it's like the Lost World. And then she's got a bare midriff and they pull and pull and pull her apart so that her bare midriff rips apart. And it's like, could you go back to the guys and start killing some of them? Because it really feels like you're misogynistically murdering women for no specific reason other than to add more gore charmlessly to this fucking wretched piece of shit. So there's that. It's currently at 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. That is an accurate reading. Most of these professional critics will have seen straight-to-video pish, and they'll recognise the shapes and movements. They know pish when they see it. Yeah. But, we, I mean, we've said this before about Rotten Tomatoes. It's, it's not an exact one-to-one, -one, and it certainly can't gauge what you personally are going to like. But it's a reasonable guideline that if... Every professional reviewer thinks something is amazing. It's probably going to be pretty good. And if most of the professional re uh, reviewers think something is terrible, it's probably not going to be very good. It's the stuff that hovers around the middle uh, that tends to be a lot more subjective. Uh, and the film ends. It's got a... Like, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, um, honest trailers will pick up on this. I kind of can't wait. There's a lot of establishing shots. So they'll go mountain range and giant letters proclaiming the location. And the car's driving, and then here we are, and we pitch up here. Someone says something to Hellboy, and he goes, right, now I go to somewhere else. Then a big cityscape, and he's driving in another car, and he drives to a, uh, a building, and it goes, more giant letters, location. Who are you guys? Boom, let's go drive through here again. Big establishing shot. Da -da 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 -da. They're probably the nicest shots in the whole film, because they're just shooting nature or architecture. And it's like, well, you can't make that ugly. But they managed to do that with almost everything else. Yeah. But it ends with Kickstart My Heart by Motley Crue, a song I previously really liked. It ends on Kickstart My Heart, and I thought Hellboy 2 The Golden Army ends on... by Barry Manilow. And it's deliberately going out of its way to not be cool. It's deliberately being something else mm. and it's there's so much charm and vulnerability about Perlman's Hellboy and that Hellboy duology yeah. film yeah. 
and it is an undeniably kicking track. I like this song, but its inclusion and the way it was framed in the film felt desperately Suicide Squad levels of trying to be cool. And the one thing I haven't talked about is David Harbour as Hellboy. And I'll say straight away, his makeup, which is the first thing I saw, obviously, in the teaser trailer, is fuck ugly. Now, I know the way that Hellboy's always drawn, he's got this kind of, like, Frankenstein, like, slab of a face. And then when Ron Perlman came out with that, it's not what you'd call conventionally attractive. But there is a definite beauty and aesthetically pleasing design to that Hellboy I have a huge canvas print on my wall of the Drew Strutzen poster that was never released for the original Hellboy. In January of this year, the sculptor for Perlman's Hellboy, Matt Rose, died, and the world lost a true artist. It is a beautiful costume design, it is a beautiful makeup design, and uh, he acts through it magnificently. This looks like a squashed potato. This Hellboy looks like a lackey for an other villain in a film that's cheap. His face looks twisted and immobile, like terribly burned World War II fighter pilots whose faces had to be experimentally, surgically rebuilt with flesh from their thighs. He looks like someone who shouldn't have to act or emote or deliver anything other than simple aggression. They even managed to make baby Hellboy look horrendous. Somehow in 2004, with their ropey CG back then, in the era of millennial rubber, they managed to make baby Hellboy look like this cute, dangerous little monkey demon. And he got to share a candy bar with Broom just to show that bonding, just so that you could love this little guy. Whereas in this, in a wordless flashback, Ian McShane holds at gunpoint the first pass without any further renderings or detail or texture added, on a squat, dead-eyed, hairless, red ape gonk. Grown-up Hellboy wanders about with a face that looks like a bulldog licking piss off a nettle, scrunched up and sour. And there's always this disgusting, bedraggled, death metal wig flopping about the place, this gunky hair everywhere. Oh, he looks like shit. And somehow, David Harbour actually isn't too bad acting through it. I was expecting to go, well, that's not Hellboy. Nope, nope. First thing he does is track down an old friend of his in Mexico. They have a wrestling match uh, in front of a baying crowd. The guy turns into a giant vampire bat, and Hellboy tries to subdue him, throws him, and he ends up impaled on the wrestling post, dies uh, in Hellboy's arms. Now, if Hellboy had gone, eh, fuck you, and then wandered off uh, smoking a cigar, I would have gone, well, they fucked Hellboy in the first fucking move. But he's really upset. And he goes and, 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 and like he's, he's quite vulnerable and tender with the guy and gets you know drunk and self-loathing. And then when he talks to Broom, he talks in a way that feels authentic. You knew, didn't you, this whole time? This beast inside me, my inner nature, my destiny. So did you. Why didn't you kill me all those years ago? You had a job to protect the world from monsters. I have never, ever regretted the decision I made that night. 
And I wish that that scene where he's talking to his father's ectoplasmic ghost matched any of the rest of the movie. Because it would mean the movie itself would not be so terrible. But it's one heartfelt scene in a sea of garbage. You know what? I think we need to bring in Willow now. So let's jump forward four years after these first impressions and see what Willow thought after having just sat down with it. They didn't make this for previous Hellboy fans, movie or comic. Yep. They made it for people that liked the aesthetic of the concept of a hellish boy. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is, this is off-brand Hellboy. It is. Ooh, a hellish boy. I wonder what that would look like. I think it'll be like a little like this. <laughs> he has a beard. David Harbour has a beard. That's true. Could have used his own beard. They gave him a stunt beard. <laughs> and this... Grotty rat pube chest wig, which you pointed out, had a snail trail that descends part way towards his belt line and then just kind of stops like he shaved it. But then you noticed he had no chest hair at all in some scenes and that these were just for some. Like, it's like his hair crawled off, went to its trailer and then forgot to come back for certain scenes. And the scenes were better for it, by the way. I felt less like throwing up in my own mouth. I don't know why. And they did this when he hulked out into his big bad devil boy mm. uniform. They made him more hairy. <laughs> <laughs> they put more hair on his back when they had the big horns. And I don't know why. They you, would, you would think the fire would singe off the all hair. the hair. And I say this as a very hairy chap. I try to keep myself groomed. But hellish boys are sloppy bear. Just looking at how greasy it is, you think it would burn off. It's a disgusting greasy black mullet that he's got as well. Something about the eyes. You mentioned that uh, Ron Perlman's able to act with those eyes. Mm. David Harbour seems to be trapped behind these uncomfortable, unhealthy-looking yellow contacts, and he's not able to emote through them. And again, I don't want to blame Harbour on, on this one. Uh, actually, you know, in, in retrospect, since the 70-year-old uh, Perlman probably couldn't do a Hellboy under a new director in a cheaper milieu... I believe his exact words were, Oh, Fuck off, I'm no. 70. <laughs> Um, then Harbour was actually a good choice and you know subsequently having seen him in Violent Night and uh, Black Widow where he plays a jolly smashy red guy it feels like the trifecta right there so it made me think you know I could I could just about see Harbour returning as Hellboy and that's the one thing that's definitely not going to be in this new one. Mignola actually modeled Hellboy after his dad, who I think was a carpenter, or at least someone who worked with his hands a lot, mm. who would come home with these awful injuries and just be like, it's fine. Yeah, you gotta staple me back together, Christine. It makes it feel like it's a real person. The report that this was closer to Mignola's comic was ill-founded for several reasons. Uh, one, the original 2004 GDT Hellboy most definitely replicates material that was in Seed of Destruction, right? The, the, the first book where they go back to sort of this is Hellboy and then uh, Samael creature, the frog thing uh, that he goes up against. And, and then Right Hand of Doom with um, 
Rasputin and trying to get him to open this portal to the realm of chaos and doom the earth. And that's definitely from the Mignola comics. The second one, The Golden Army, was something put together by uh, Del Toro himself that feels very much rooted in kind of the folklore that would fit perfectly in with Hellboy. It's not from the comics, but it seems like it could fit alongside and with the comics very, very well. It's very elegant, which is something that this dark series of fables that Hellboy kind of steps in and out of there's a sadness to them where monsters are sort of old and they're angry or they're victims or they're shadows or that there's something going on there. And this film, Heckboy, seems intent on going, nope, nothing. Like we've got the wild hunt from what, the seventh book or something. So the circumstances that were in that book are in this. But if you showed this to a Hellboy fan and said it's closer to the comic, they'd go, not like this, <laughs> not like this. Can you remember what Del Toro said about how he tries to do monsters. He. Uh, we listened to the commentary for the 2004 film last night just to give uh, Will some extra pointers. Yeah, I know he said that he wanted to make them look like animals in repose. Bingo. Yes, precisely. Yes. And what is there none of? <laughs> there are no monsters. You never get there to see two. them resting. There are two monsters in it the vampire Mexican guy and then the giant pig ball, mm. who should be this eldritch demon. There's a few- I'll fucking have you! There's a few moments where they actually could have developed him into a monster in repose, when he's at the house, the, mm. the little cottage, with Nimue. We oh, we forgot about the blood queen. Knocking around in the kitchen, making bacon and eggs, you know. Making bacon? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what makes him a monster. Um, <laughs> Can I have some bacon? No, bacon's off. <laughs> See, we're just writing this, improvising better stuff that was but actually in the film. A little bit of that would have gone a long way, but the, you just really don't have anything of these creatures feeling like they inhabit their own world. Mm. There were giants, there's a were-leopard mm. in this. with. Yeah. Uh, but we don't see them doing their own thing. Mm. It's only ever how do they relate to the activities of the BPRD. Well, it's not even that much of an activity. They just go to the next location and almost immediately, Beat there's a fight. I believe this was also the first time Sharon got to see Heckboy 2019 for herself, along with Willow. One of the things that really bothered me about this, and it's something that I never really thought I would find myself saying, is this was a proper waste of Mila Jovovich. Yeah. She, I, I've never really seen her do anything that would make me think, oh my God, she's capable of so much more than this. The fifth but element, she's the, great in that. Well, apart from that. But at this stage in her career, would you let the woman do something else other than knocking around in limited clothes being vaguely scary? As I said, the reason she's in this film is because the catchment audience they were going for and fans of the Resident Evil movies, the Venn diagram is a circle. Mm. They just want guys who are like, I'm fine with switching my brain off and it's fun. And I want to see Mila Jovovich without clothes. So, okay, so what you're effectively saying then is the <laughs> the target audience for this movie is Paul, Paul W.S. Anderson. Anderson. I don't know, I feel like he's still watching and thinking, I, I could do better than that. <laughs> I could copy other films and not understand them and put those in there. <laughs> it's aggressively macho. Interestingly, Hellboy himself isn't aggressively macho. <sighs> I don't, I don't think so. I, 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 
David Harbour plays him like, oh, oh, like, oh, come on, like real music. And like, he's a surly teenager. But specifically the casting of Broom, we love Ian McShane, Sharon and I. Willow hasn't really watched him play Elsewhere Engine yet, but um, they will. This heck boy is... A pickled sun-dried tomato with a teenager's mind. It really makes you appreciate that the craftsmanship and beauty of the original facial sculpt carving and that original right hand of doom. Like, Hellboy 04 is a film that I straight away liked when I saw it, but then every subsequent time I saw it, I liked it more. There's more to like about it. You know, I, I, I read little fairy stories to Will from Hellboy and sort of showed her that this is when he went underground and this is the uh, the, the lady who thought he was Father Christmas and this is when he had to fight the white worm. I gave it, I gave them sort of, they got quickly that Hellboy was a big gruff thing that was actually kind of uh, friendly in the end. You did this to me. Yes, <laughs> but at the same time, I gave you an appreciation of gothic ambience and this film has none of that. But like I said, Broom, in the original comics, dies immediately. Like, in the first panel he goes, As you know, I have gone to a mansion, and I met a frog there, I die! And then he just Cops explodes. Then fall over dead. <laughs> Mignola actually wrote about regretting that, because mm. he realised after he made the comic, Ooh! Father-son relationship between a monster and a an human old scholar. Old dad. Yeah. Oh, I should have written more into that. Absolutely. And that's why he did more on their relationship further into the book. Yeah, in flashbacks, yeah. Which, I mean, the, the Del Toro film certainly showed him what he could have done with that. I think John Hurt's performance in that is wonderful and fragile, but the, the fact that um, when he meets his end in that film, and the actual, the transition from Hellboy from a child to a man occurs silently over that period. It's wonderful and brilliant. They went out of their way with this to go, this ain't your mama's Hellboy. You know, all that sweetness and kindness and, and wrinkly-eyed charm that John Hurt, the storyteller, brought to production. Instead, we've got, grow some fucking balls from Al Swearingen, who just, just, who came along and was given this awful role and went, yeah, okay, I can do it. And, and it's not his fault, but he, he is both horrendously wasted and abused as an actor. And his informing on the tone of this film is indelible. I think I said this while we were watching this. He would have been so much better as the villain. Oh, yeah. You could have done so much with him being this dastardly guy that won't stop talking. Uh, Vladimir Gurescu from Book Two, Wake the Devil. The, the Dracula type. Him played by an, a like an aging, sort of twisted Ian McShane. And as father, because you can bring him back now, Sir Ian McKellen. Absolutely. Delivering the sweetness between him and Hellboy. They could still be grumpy at each other, but you'd you'd get that bond back and you'd care about it. And by God, would David Harbour work well with Sir Ian McKellen? Because they are chalk and cheese as actors. But I think that combination would work. Yeah. What was the, the way that you summed it up, their relationship? Between Broom and Hellboy. Mm. I... In this, abusive. It is abusive. And neglectful, somehow, at the same time. You manage the worst of both worlds. Bad broom. Mad as a brush. I called it frail wisdom teaching strong ignorance. It's... Nice. Hellboy is... He's gone through his entire half-century, little over half-century life, 
protected by Broom from shitty outside people that see him differently and mm. would not at all respect him, even after how hard he works to keep them safe, or... Like, I love the idea that the army that picked him up were, like, all uncles and Broom mm. was his father. Mm. Like, he still has people that genuinely care about him and want to see him succeed, but Broom is there as that barrier between the uncaring outside world and Hellboy. Anyone would be immediately afraid of him, even after he saved kittens! Mm. He saved kittens! It's a literal save the cat moment. Del Toro specifically said that he wanted to have a save the kitten moment for him. Well, the, Del Toro went out of his way to make Hellboy clearly a big kid, so that kids watching can be like, oh, he likes candy bars and chili and nachos. And he has a race car bed! Has a... He has a race car bed! <laughs> he has like a flatbed truck bed. And it's, we speculated that he started with a race car bed, but didn't want to give it up and insisted that they keep making him bigger beds as he got ginormous. <laughs> but they have to have wheels on them. There's so much to Del Toro's relationship between Broom and Hellboy. Mm. And there's so much for when he dies. It's so heartbreaking mm. because it goes from Hellboy goofing off, going around, he's... There's obviously history between them. When Hellboy hides his cigar behind his back when Broom shows up, they've obviously talked about that before then. That means that Broom has... Broom's dying of lung cancer. Exactly! There's so many cool details to that film, and they're completely pushed away in Hegboy. Yeah. It's Al Swearingen in a hallway, a damp, dusty, BPRD hallway. Cheap. <laughs> Just Could be filmed very cheaply in a warehouse. With an angsty teenager. Mm. He's there the entire film until the end, dies just so that Hellboy can get that little nudge to, you know, get out of his hellish state. Which, by the way, not a smooth transition. When he breaks off his horns in Del Toro, there's impact. You feel he's breaking off a part of himself. He's literally breaking off his heritage to hell. And in... He's making a choice that is painful. In Hegboy, he snaps him off, no problem! Oh, He's it's going to be difficult for him to head. snap off those horns. You don't even feel the, the, the weight of the snap, do you? It's like he's removing <laughs> something that's that's just been detached and held on with sugar glue. So like cheaply made prosthetics. It snapped like a twiglet! Yeah. The video game that this reminds me most of is Dante's Inferno. Uh... This was like a, a, a religiously themed <laughs> Devil May Cry style game where you, as the poet Dante, who had a big sword and a crucifix sewn into his chest, goes down to the seven layers of hell to reclaim his beloved, who has got tits with snakes coming out of them. What?! It's full of blood and swearing, and it's super grim dark. Luck, to its credit, Heckboy isn't super grim dark and self-important, so it doesn't come off like Zack Snyder. Aside from that bit where it's like, you must choose your fate. Be the master of your own destiny. Either destroy the human race or conquer them. What's option three? There is no option three. But it does still have that same weird contempt for everything to do with the mythology. There's something that they really, really miss out on as well when they're making their villains. They did it with Baba Yaga as well. Oh. They made her so gross and pus-filled. Yeah. And they 
She's over-designed. The Blood Queen is under-designed the whole way through. She's a Blood Queen, not Red Riding Hood. All I can remember of the Blood Queen, I can't remember her doing anything particularly powerful. Just she got her head cut off, then she got her arms cut off, her legs, then she was put back together, then she gets slashed up some more, then she ends up getting her head cut off. Her superpower is being dismembered and screaming. That's awful. That's a Wearing bad a villain. Mighty. She has. I felt sorry for her, frankly. She has a red cloak for the first five minutes of the film. Mm -hmm. No other time. She has a crown made of thorns. It is right there for the taking. Very and stylish. They, they didn't even think about the fact that she is a very, very powerful and a very, very old witch. Mm. You make her outfit look astounding. Like, if you want to do the whole, oh, well, she's in bits and pieces now, so she's just got rags, but then give her a goddamn glow-up! <laughs> give her a glow-up! The kids are demanding it! I'm telling you, all of the villains look so, so boring! They do. If they could have somehow blended the characters of Nimue and Baba Yaga mm. and made it feel like, okay, so A... Mila Jovovich has Russian background, so playing a Russian mythological creature would have would probably been a little bit more to her. Yep. And B, it then gives you this feeling that these powerful hag-like creatures that pop up in various different mythologies mm. are all part and parcel of the same pool. And Baba Yaga doesn't exist in the comics to be unsettling. And oh, look at me, I have no joints. It's... Yeah, she's a, she's a force of uh, supernature. She's... When you see her, you feel a chill. Mm. She isn't like, bleh, in your face. Oh, you have piss eyes. I want them. <laughs> it's That's an actual quote from the film. Your eyes are the color of piss. My, my favorite. favorite. Granny wants some peach tea. It's not meant to be, I'm in your face. I'm so scary. It's... I am Baba Yaga. Hmm. I am going to be one of the most terrifying people you may meet. Yeah. It's the feeling of but being in, watched in, by her. In the context of how <sighs> she appears in exactly. mythology, she's, yes, all right, she's usually portrayed as this sort of hag that will come and take away children, but she also presents these lessons that have to be learned. And this is where the force of nature element comes in. She has striking she ambiguity. terrifying, but she is also necessary because she provides this framework around which we have to learn to live. We have to live in a world that has hurricanes and earthquakes and some terrible shit going on in it. It would be great if we could learn to be nicer to each other so that we could deal with all of that stuff, but you still need those lessons that will teach you how to handle the stuff that you cannot sidestep and cannot avoid. They made a point that Baba Yaga, the reason that Hellboy shot out her eye was that she was trying to resurrect Stalin, which makes no sense <laughs> because she was trying to resurrect Rasputin, who is actually her grandson, who actually has ties with her. Stalin's never mentioned, ever. The Green Knight is a better Hellboy film than this. 
gonna say something about that. In The Green Knight, you never see a full shot of him, maybe once, but you always see like his ankles mm. because he's stepping on real people. There's no weight to that in this film. Let me kill Baba Yaga. Let me get on with this. I'm gonna protect humans now with no transition in between. It is literally just him going from A to B to A like a fucking hopscotch game. Yikes. Excuse my language. I've, okay, for some context, folks. Will had to go into hospital just at Christmas time um, with a sudden, unexplained uh, pains in their abdomen. And that's why I hate this movie. And we were stuck there overnight, and I sent Sharon home, and then Sharon came back, and she sent me home, and we stayed with Will throughout uh, nearly 24 hours of being stuck there. And casting around for like a, a, an amazing present to give them on the spot, I said, okay, for the next year, for 2023, you're allowed to swear whenever you want. Choose it wisely. Like a goddamn sailor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, ultimately we're giving you the opportunity to decide when to. You know how in New Century I have some characters who swear, I have some characters who never swear. It's not just everyone says FS, blah, 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 blah all of that stuff. Because that kind of makes everything monotone. Just like in real life, you meet people who swear all the time, and you meet people who would never curse because they are good people. It's ungodly. Yes. Um, but it just reminded me, Hellboy has two friends in this movie, companions, Alice and they're, Daimyo, the uh, were-leopard. They're replacing Abe and Liz, mm. who are not mentioned until the very end of the movie where you're teased at sequel, but we won't give you one. Ugh, thank God. It's like I'm, I'm really glad this didn't get a sequel, but I do kind of wish, if since they were rebooting it, and remarkably close, by the way, that it, they, they kept David Harbour. But I suppose they, they either they concluded that people would say, I'm not watching a sequel to this rubbish Hellboy that nobody likes, or David Harbour himself went, Oh, I was only contracted to do one. That's okay. I've got other things to do. <laughs> but I didn't even. <laughs> Oh, God, the there's so much about this movie that frustrates me. Me too. But when Abe slaps his hand on the tank, because obviously he's been in that tank for God knows how long, mm -hmm. and... Well, since Abraham Lincoln's death. Suddenly people are tapping on his tank and he's just like, Homer, what's going on? He slaps it. I didn't even need to see the rest of his body. His hand looked so gross. Ew. <laughs> So, when he does yeah. it in the Del Toro film, he slaps his hand on the glass to freak out Myers and say, turn the page, please. It's just this really, you see the suction cups, you see the details There's on the hand. There's a delicacy about it, yeah. They went you out of their the way tours. to make him. Uh, Del Toro loves Abe Sapien. His email address is abesapien at hotmail.com. That's Abe's commitment. great. Absolutely. <laughs> about the scale thing, I, I'm returning to the BPRD set because my... God, <laughs> when re-watching Del Toro with the commentary yesterday, <laughs> I saw how big this building was. I saw how many floors this place might have. 42 times 24. Yeah, just, just the labeling on the walls um, around the big sets gave an idea that this thing was a labyrinth that went on for miles. Absolutely, and that just gives you the idea that all of these floors are absolutely covered in artifacts and research that... Whereas this felt more like it was shot in the real world, which is boring! It, I don't want anything to do with the real world! It looks like they cut off 
a part of the sewers, they added an elevator. You. And it's sewer just elevator. one hallway. Yeah. With lots of lots of mahogany tables, no artifacts to even show that they're an actual research estate institute. That's a fine point. Yeah, it did it didn't have um like it didn't look like it was for paranormal anything because we had no sense What do you do here? Well we have tables. Well that's the thing, yeah. It's it's for like this is the special and the not normal. I love when in the JJ Abrams Star Trek they sort of incorporate bits of like real worldy stuff. Like I I pointed out that when Star Trek Nemesis came out they had at the wedding there was some space drums. They had like a, a like neon yellow plastic symbols, and it's like, well, they're like symbols, but in space, which made me go, yeah, it's fine. But in the Abrams one, it feels like it's actually in Iowa, and it's you know, it, it looks like a regular car, but with a few extra bits and accoutrements added to it. But you have to add the accoutrements. So you got the grounding in reality, plus the little bit of special that takes you sideways. That's why the effects in District 9 look so good. That's what I did with New Century. I, I, I went, right, we will start at the timeline of 1872 and everything as in human history that ever happened up to that point has happened, which means I have to be careful what I say about where people go and what things have happened because I have to conform to this particular restriction, which has allowed me to give it shape and a foundation of reality while I add all the sparkly extra bits that make it supernatural. When they made the hallway leading up to Hellboy's grounding room, the big vault, <laughs> they don't even make it cluttered with artifacts because again that adds more space to it that adds more production value yeah it adds more what can we afford to lose props department get rid of the props you can still waltz a tray of i can only presume tons of pancakes and pastrami he probably eats a thousand pancakes for breakfast he's a huge hell beast but they can still trail all of this down the hallway mm. while a baby in a jar is on the wall. Yeah. And a giant- Del Toro does like his fetuses in jars. <laughs> it's awesome. And I just noticed looking around the hallway, it's a lot more older than it looks. Like it looks all shiny with the bright metal, but there are like heating pipes mm -hmm. that where the insulation has started to tear and no one's looking after it. Whoa! Like, there's such a big spot that they only have enough time and energy... Energy? Energy, energy to clean up at least half of it. Yeah, so they always, focus on the yeah. surface bits that everybody's looking at and yeah. think, no one's gonna look at the heating pipes <laughs> that cover the entire doorways. Mm. It was either that or there was like giant masts of wood mm. that were there as part but of this the is, artifacts. This is absolutely how you make an environment look lived in. And, and like it's been lived in for a long time, you put layers to it. Mm. You look at a, a, a city that's been in place for longer than say, 30 years and I mean, I mean even 30 years there would be some of this but you go much back beyond that and you've got the layer where the roads came in then you've got the layer where the sewers came in then you've got the layer where the, these buildings came in then you've got these buildings that they put around that then you've got the sky, skyscrapers that came in much much later mm. and then you've got the parks and things that they quickly hastily filled in around that because they realised that everything looked like glass and chrome and it was horrible mm. yeah 
Um, what did you think of the ectoplasm effect? There was two instances where uh, a giant spurt of ectoplasm turned into somebody's uh, disembodied ghostly form with like their ribs showing. Alice's special oh. power. Mm-hmm. Oh, what did you think of Alice's special power, Will? She it's pukes so... ectoplasm and it turns into a person. It's so disgusting! I... It's, oh my god. I know that it's meant to be like souls of the past coming through ectoplasm, but he hasn't been dead that long! Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, the, it's, it's doubly disgusting. It's true. disgusting because the concept is disgusting, but I'm fine with that. But it's also disgusting because the actual, like, the, the wobbly, chroma-keyed head of Ian McShane being put on this wibbly CG thing looks wrong. Whenever you try to put a human head on a CG thing, nothing about it's going to look right. And, and while that might look uncanny and like a ghost, it just looks like a bad special effect. We've Cats seen more of them than we see you. ghosts. There's another layer of disgusting for me as well, in that they have taken the trouble to cast a really good actress to play Alice, and then proceed to have the one thing she's known for be falling on the floor, throwing up, and taking no further part in proceedings. That's true, actually. Her puke does all the work. Absolutely. (laughs) I have the thing about Alice. Similarly, whenever Daimyo, like, steps up to the plate, he gets swapped out and a CGI leopard turns up instead. Indeed. I also said that Nimue herself could and should be positioned much like Prince Nuada, as in she's on a crusade and Hellboy is her diametric opposite because he's trying to... make her her moral standpoint be, Arthur, you've turned up with this fucking sword that you got off a fucking lady in a fucking lake and now you're trying to take over the entirety of the mythological British Isles which has been here a lot longer than you! I don't know why Sharon's turning the air blue now. She's so good normally. (laughs) I was in character. Nimue, under that circumstance, would swear. Yeah. Yes, well... Um... The thing about Alice and Hellboy, this draws into another point I'm going to make about Hellboy's relationships with the rest of the Bureau. He does not care enough. There is so much worry and tension whenever Abe, Frank, Broom, whenever they get hurt. Roger! Where's Roger? Where's Roger? Where's my boy? Roger is a homunculus, right? He's from the comics, but he, he's never mentioned in any of the iterations! He's so... boy! He's so baby girl! You're saying we want homunculus, not homunculus. Homunculus. But in the comics as well, when Liz gets all of her flame juice dragged out of her, that really messes with Hellboy! He freaks out! Also, can we get Kate Corrigan in something that's not just the animated ones? She's in one animated one. Yeah. God, there's so many characters they're missing out on. Mm-hmm. But in Del Toro and the comic, there is so much weight when the people around him get hurt because it reminds him how fragile the people he cares about are and how strong he is. And he distracts himself with work. He distracts himself with giant monsters. This is why he holds on to the loner. Because if people are around him while he's biffing and baffing these giant frogs and they get hurt as well, he's going to hold that on him because he should have hit faster, he should have hit harder. But in Heckboy, he does not give a shit. Or at least he... He seems frustrated and distracted and uh, annoyed most Mm. of the time. When his Mexican vampire buddy at the beginning gets 
turned into a vampire and he's slipping away, my friend from the backyard. They make way too much fun out of it. Mm -hmm. They make it too funny. Yeah. You can't be dramatic and funny at the same time unless you're Wade Wilson. There's a rule. <laughs> Even he sometimes has difficulty keeping tone balanced. Uh, but at least we get someone who once worked with Wade Wilson playing the next Hellboy. On that note, I think I've worked out the actual correct home for Hellboy that seemingly no one has ever put on the table. Animated Netflix series in the vein of the Castlevania series. Not restricted by, you've got to have a specific episode count. The first season of that is like four episodes. Then the next season is like six episodes. And then uh, it's... They made it as long or as short as it has to be. It's definitely for adults, but that show doesn't come off as juvenile with its gore and sex and swearing. It is clearly written by adults, about adults, for adults, which is not the same thing as swearing and smashing things around and blood and gore. There's a very important part to Hellboy's relationships which I think they skimmed over, which was how free he feels and things. He's always felt that he didn't belong or something was leading up to him. He wondered about his right hand. He wondered where he came from. He wondered why he's here. The eternal question, who am I? It's one of the only major story types. Also, Lobster Johnston was in this. That was the other thing you liked. This was your early days Captain America, punching people, giving them the claw to the face. So he's like a real-life guy that they made comics about just like the Marvel Captain America. Yeah. Right. And Hellboy in the comics gets really excited when he meets Lobster Johnson because it's like, I had comics of you, dude! Where you been? Th that thing about the sound effects that you said. <gasps> Comic Hellboy says pow and bam out loud. There is a text bubble whenever he hits a monster. He is hitting monsters and saying pow and biff. And I love it so much. Is that so right, much. biff? I want so bad for Abe and Liz to tease him over it because I feel like Hellboy read like superhero comics where it was just like pow, biff, bam, boom. And took them very literally. <laughs> yeah. It's so frustrating. Yep. In Del Toro, Broom raises him with compassion and the want to protect other people. Mm -hmm. The want to be the person between the bump in the night and the people outside, the people that need protecting. And... Our <laughs> 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 swearing gym, Dr. Broom, is just this old bastard. Oh, you old bastard. He's so grumpy. Yeah. He makes him into this... Killing machine tank. Yeah. He's as bad as every other military leader that would want this giant demon mm. and want to use him, throw him into battle, and take down what they point at. That doesn't prove that it's a father-son relationship. That proves that it's a boss-employee relationship. <gasps> He's using him. That's a really good point, yeah. Yeah. It's so shitty. I delegated you all these duties because I knew you could achieve your best. See, here's where you are right now, heck boy. We need you to be over here. I'm going to need those TPS reports by Monday. Yeah! <laughs> as impervious as Hellboy is to physical attacks... He's not impervious. He gets hit all the time and it hurts. Well, that's true. Um, as, as much endurance as he has. Endurance, yeah. 
has much endurance as Hellboy has. Tech boy. <laughs> no, this is the one good one. The good real one. Hellboy. Real Hellboy. Okay. I'll make sure you hear the quotations in my voice. <laughs> but when Hellboy gets hurt, or when Hellboy goes out of his way to go out to go see Liz, he gets grounded for good reason because he's getting spotted more and more often, which means he could be in danger of getting kicked out, of being exposed, of people going, we want to see this devil boy. Oh my God, there's a devil boy, kill it. I don't think elegance is something that cinema audiences are necessarily drawn to as a buzzword. And I keep coming back to it because that's what the comic is. And while the uh, Del Toro films are a lot more jovial and they swap out, um, Motley Crue for Barry Manilow, there's a undoubtedly an elegance there. Which is why I feel like a TV show, like Castlevania, the Netflix version, has got elegance. Mm. And I feel like if you do your gothic right, it's going to have that. Even if it is disgusting and greebly, there's going to be moments of uh, presenting the world itself as a balefully magnificent painting that contains this red hammer. Hellboy is steeped in the gothic aesthetic. Ergo, just making everything look like a warehouse underneath a London pub does it at a complete disservice. And no one's gonna come and see your film which looks like it's set in a grotty under London pub. So I don't even know who you're making happy here, they apart from the financiers, and it's still lost money. They leaned on the Bureau part of Bureau Paranormal Research and Defense hmm. way too much. There's no paranormal. Just the research, <laughs> The research is papers we can't read and bums going around looking like they're reading them. Hmm. And defense? I don't know, they shoot things? <laughs> also, there's a King Arthur bit in there as well. Like, they, they strong-armed in Merlin saying, you've got to take this sword out of and the lake. And he shows up later with no consequence he goes oh that was your one chance to take it no it wasn't you did <laughs> and then eventually man is like oh for fuck's sake and then turns to dust because apparently wizards have like battery percentages mm. they can only use so much of their magic and then they go up oh. and they get very hot in the afternoon for no reason <laughs> yeah and if they get cold they go from 49 percent to nothing in a matter of seconds like, oh, Wizard, I thought you were gonna last, but apparently not. Somebody get me a lightning cable. You gotta plug these wizards in, sometimes not only all night, but a good portion of the day as well. Correct. I'd say a good portion of the century. Okay. Uh, but They're not solar powered. I did note, I was like, is that Brendan Gleeson? And you went, no, it's the guy who played Hammoth in uh, the, uh, the Northman. And it turned out to be Brian a Gleeson, Brian Gleeson, son, uh, sorry, brother son of Domnal Gleeson. Get the fuck away from me! But, um, yeah, honestly, you had an opportunity to have Merlin in this film and you didn't make him a mentor type figure? No, Brilliant. Like, there's so much they tripped up on in this movie. The aesthetic, the style, the simplicity. Oh my god, the simplicity of it! The heart, the brains, the folklore. Absolutely. They pushed way too hard to make it big, loud, bloody, Impact. scary. Editing, uh, video game, action, blah. And the amount of jump cuts there are, it makes you, like, you can't stare at it long enough to go, no, no that's not right, no, that's, 
No, that looks horrible. You did it bad. You did a bad move. Ah, but you don't know because we only let you look at it for a tenth of a second. And then we cut away again to yes. someone else punching and someone else. And your sound balance sucks. Oh my That's god, true, does actually. it suck? <laughs> it, there is a talking very quietly. Well, there's a very big, loud jump scare. That equals true. <laughs> I'm going to call it there, folks, because I think we've given this particular dead horse enough of a kicking. But uh, I think an hour and ten minutes is good enough. This was my worst film of 2019, and my favourite film was Endgame. So I think that would make it one of the best comic book movies of all time, and one of, if not the worst comic book movie of all time. Because here's the thing, I always resent productions like this, not for just how bad they are, but for the poisoning effect. The, what I said at the very beginning when we started talking about this, the idea that people will associate Hellboy with Heckboy, this pretender, this, like, you should just press an iron horseshoe to Heckboy and see it turn into a disgusting blob and start screaming because it hates the touch of iron. I've just remembered- It's a changeling Hellboy. (laughs) I watched some videos last night about Ron Pullman talking about what he thought of it. And he likes David Harbour. He likes talking to them. him. He had a cool evening dinner with him that Patton Oswalt set up, which is really, really cool. <laughs> it's a Hellboy evening. Uh, everyone bring along a Hellboy. <laughs> All I could think of was Remy the Rat setting up two Hellboys. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's... serving them food. But he just explained that it was really a letdown because he wanted the third Hellboy movie so bad and he was so excited to see what Guillermo would do with cleaning everything up, getting an apocalypse scene, getting his um, nurture over nature and it was so... And the Hellboy kids, I think there was going to be twins. Yeah, that's that's the suggestion. And also Selma Blair, who is not in the best health nowadays... It feels like that was would have been her chance to come back and do something phenomenal, yeah. dramatically speaking, even if it would have been lower on the action. The way he talked about it, he was excited, but really let down by how much effort they didn't put into the movie and how much effort he knew Guillermo would have put into a third movie. Mm. And he's just a really great guy. Yeah. And I'm sure David Harbour is an equally great guy. So we can start letting Neil Marshall off the hook when and if this new Hellboy comes out and is better. It's like if you tried to make a Resident Evil movie now, people would go, I know what you're trying to do. You got Alice in there, you're not getting that past me. And people wouldn't go and see it unless they were the catchment audience for the original Resident Evil movies. Yeah. Yeah. Which they promised they'd stop making. (laughs) I have it in writing. Yes, but then Paul W.S. Anderson needs more money. Man's got a tax bill. Here's my brother, Paul W.S. Anderson. Don't give him any money. (laughs) You might make a movie. Okay, Wes. (laughs) We're going round in circles now. The dead horse is is liquefying under our boots. I will not stop until this horse is a gas. Jesus! Can't we have to put him in a suit criticism. to hold him in. Well, this metaphor is becoming really gross. Um, so, yeah, like, okay. we're not going to stop loving Hellboy. I am over the moon that you've been reading the books and are really liking them. That is obviously where I would suggest people go for further re- for, for literal further reading of, of Hellboy. Those first bunch where Mike Mignola was doing the art himself as well as the writing are magnificent. There's your homework, folks. 
I do have one suggestion. If you are adamant on watching this movie, I want to watch it for myself, I want to get an opinion for it, I really, really suggest that you have a bucket and the theatrical version of the original Del Toro's Hellboy on the side so that you can just have a palate cleanser. Just because it was... What's the bucket for? To be sick into? Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. Watching it... Also, don't just watch the Del Toro Hellboy. Stick on the Del Toro commentary and really reassociate yourself with how much thought went into everything. Yeah. Sometimes it's a wide-breath group like Justice Society of America, which is all goody-goodies uh, getting together to fight for against evil. And sometimes it has more of an edge. My favorite being actually Doom Patrol, which is also the one that influenced Mike Mignola the most in creating a BPRD. But uh, Hellboy was created as a movie much like it was created as a comic book. Mike Mignola was trying to write the comic book he wanted to read as a kid. As he said, uh, I, I just thought I'll put everything I like into the comic and even if it lives only once, I'll be happy. I felt exactly the same way about the movie. Uh, Broom, for example, in the comic uh, dies extremely fast. He dies in the first 10 pages, I think, of the, of the first... Um, series called Seed of Destruction. But in subsequent um, graphic novels and short stories, Mike Mignola has expanded upon the role that Broom had as a father uh, with Hellboy. So I felt that we needed to extend his function and delay his death up until this moment to make it really painful to lose him. It's uh, it's terrible to kill a character in the first five, ten minutes because you don't have yet any attachment to him. But to kill Broom here and to kill him while Hellboy is out is such a guilt trip. It's such a terrible thing to, to, give it, to, to have Hellboy go through that uh, I wanted to do it in the movie. I wanted Hellboy to change from now on. From this moment on, Hellboy becomes more of a man. His decisions, the way he approaches every conflict is less childish, hopefully still very charming, but this is the pivotal point of Hellboy's change. By, by being out in what amounts to a silly jealousy thing uh, while his father was being killed, um, I, f- I felt that Hellboy would gain enough of an emotional motor to change. And I think that I I didn't want to have the character articulated. You know, some people when writing screenplays are very tempted to have the character articulate what happens. Much to the dismay of people that like that type of screenplay, I don't do it like that. So some people have to live with the fact that I think characters are defined by what they do and how they interact with each other, not by monologues in a coffee shop where they confess uh, to each other what their life is. And I think Hellboy, to me, uh, is defined as a changed, lonely man in an image of him watching the funeral from afar, in the rain, and not being able to participate because he's a monster. And from that moment on, there's a nuance changing on a Hellboy. He's more efficient. No one 
from now on, no one uh, uh, will just hear him be glib or joke. He has a, a different gravity from now on. Some of the edits from this point on in the movie were done with that in, in mind. But he doesn't tell Liz, as I said, he doesn't tell Liz, I was not here when he died. And I will never, ever fail anyone else again, blah, blah, blah. He just is very changed. Because this movie is so much better. And it's just... Thinking about it, I might actually do a, a podcast where we talk about Get a Blu-ray Collection. I know it sounds mental, but I keep hearing, especially our younger audience, going, oh, I really want to watch this film, but it's not streaming anywhere, and so I guess I can't. Uh, or I have to resort to piracy. Well, you know what? Piracy won't usually get you commentaries. It won't get you all those extra features. And, and it also, just being able to have a Blu-ray on your shelf. And I feel like if you just get your favourites, having 20 Blu-rays is special, mm -hmm. because it means you've got access to your favorite movies in the best possible way only having dvd versions of them this format murdered movies it was a cul-de-sac i keep saying you took them down one path and you made them as 480p as they could possibly ever get obviously dvds vary and the later ones look way better than the earlier ones but i still would never recommend someone see a film on on dvd if they want to get the best version of it mm. murdered is maybe a little too harsh for the humble dvd kidnapped but at the same time the era of dvds the 2000s were when the filmmakers could impart their knowledge to the audience directly. All those extra features, all this super hyper-focused material. I learned about filmmaking from this. VHS didn't do that, and increasingly, Blu-ray dialed back on that. So that's one thing DVDs actually had over Blu-ray, because at that point, the studios and distributors were actually under the impression that people wanted to know how movies are made. You ever seen the extra features on a packet of sausage you just bought? You do not want to know how those are made. And the wiener magnates, or big sausage if you will, much like Disney, now don't want you to know. But here's the thing. Everybody has a TV. If they're listening to this podcast, chances are you've got a TV. You may not have a Blu-ray player. You might either have an old console like a PlayStation 4 or even a PlayStation 3, that can absolutely play Blu-rays on your HDTV. And I checked on American eBay, you can pick up a PlayStation 3 for about $80, a PlayStation 4 for about $120. And of course, as well as playing all those Blu-rays, you get access to a massive library of very inexpensive pre-owned games. Available on disc in abundance. I think movies are worth $100 of your bucks. And I think it's worth getting a collection of Blu-rays of your favourites. We started a whole new thread on the Discord, Blu-ray bargains. Because they're all over eBay as well. You may notice places like Target clearing shelves of Blu-rays and hard copy games. Now is the time to grab them on the cheap. Titanic 4-disc combo Blu-ray with complete making of materials. One of the best Blu-rays ever made. $8 on eBay. Pacific Rim by Guillermo del Toro. $3. Star Trek 2009 3-disc special edition. $4.20. This is the price delivered. It's $3.99 just to rent it for one night on Amazon digitally. Or you could pay a constant 
Paramount Plus subscription to have access to it. Or even just buying them brand new on Amazon. One of our friends, Name Chaibiti, posted the first four Batman movies on Amazon, $11 box set. Knives Out, $7. The original Top Gun, $7.50. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, 25th Anniversary Edition, $5. Brand new. The Thing, $9. The Big Lebowski, $8. Rad Dad found the original Independence Day for $6 in 4K at a yard sale. You can play that on an Xbox One. And of course, the 4K will also include a Blu-ray disc. The 2017 remaster of Heat for $4. This is an embarrassment of riches because everyone's eyes are on streaming right now. These Blu-rays will not be here forever. And they are a way of preserving that film that matters to you, not a long-term rental that can be rescinded at any time. Defy capitalism by spending thriftily now. I will maintain this, and I'll come back to it, and I'll ask people to let me know how your Blu-ray collections are shaping up. And the first two Blu-rays you should get, whether you like them or not, are Hellboy 2004 and Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. (laughs) (laughs) Be the proud owner to have your DVD or Blu-ray collection start with the two possibly greatest Del Toro films. Don't start a DVD collection now, folks. <laughs> but especially if you're a kid and you've never really collected any kind of media in, at all. Like, if you're a younger person, it's like, get Blu-ray. There is one reason to buy DVD. And that is once you've got the Blu-ray, if you find out it's vanilla and it doesn't have much in the way of extras, see if there was a special edition released on DVD at some point. It's probably going to be pennies on eBay, but you get all those lovely bonus features. Then do what I do. Any Blu-ray boxes that you have that have an extra space for a DVD disc, that's where you put your bonus features DVD. But get them now because... Amazon are kind of like, oh, do you want to buy these Blu-rays? We have no interest we in them anymore. We don't want the warehouse space. When you enter a movie name on Amazon, you'll have to actually specify that you want the Blu-ray because they will shove you towards the digital version, which they do already. Mm-hmm. They will go out of their way to have the monopoly on your way of watching films. And so will Netflix and so will Disney. And every other company vying for this digital space and another subscription that is not good for movies. It is not good for filmmakers. They spend so much time crafting something. It could be a product, it could be art, it could be a mix of the two. You find that very often on our show. But it deserves to not just be thrown onto a pile, browsed past with disinterest. Imagine feeling like you're an ingredient that may as well not even be there. It is not good for us as consumers, And if we separate ourselves from the supply and demand consumption of capitalism, it's not good for us as people. We're livestock being given a trough of whatever by the streaming companies. I think being discerning is really important. Cherishing the ones that are worth it is worth some of your money and some of your time. And as though to compound my point, I just heard the TV series sequel to Willow one of our favorite fantasy movies, one of our best episodes, commissioned by Joel Robinson, now sadly not with us. A show we were lining up to do a podcast on is being taken off Disney+. Plus. As with The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, I never dreamed that a Willow sequel would ever even exist. It was a running gag in Warwick Davis's office-style TV show, Life's Too Short. 
So then when it did exist, I never dreamed it would be so good. And I never expected a second season, considering that the default for TV is a state of cancellation. However, I at least hoped it would stick around on D Plus for all to see. It may find a new home. I pray that it does. But while we're waiting to see what happens, for the love of God, watch all of The Willow Show. It is quality contemporary fantasy with genuine heart. And we will be doing that podcast on it, even if it does do the disappearing pig trick so hard that it disappears from our screens entirely. We'll do the podcast purely to commemorate the brief moment when it was around to be enjoyed. In conclusion, fuck the all-streaming future. On that bombshell, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And I've been Willow Shaw. And school's out. A big thank you again to all of our patrons this week. And a shout out to our $15 sponsors. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow. Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vaye, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Hey!